Now, I've got some slides for the kids. Now, I'm in charge of the clicker, but Anne, I need you to be my backup in case I'm not clicking properly. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy those pictures. All right. So it's pretty exciting. When I got asked to speak that night, I couldn't sleep. The Lord was just downloading things. And he downloaded a story from my, uh, one of my favorite stories in Genesis. And I love Genesis. It's so, when I first read it, I wish I could go back and just read it again like I've never read it because it gets you on the edge of your seat. Um, there's great characters, uh, stories, um, people who do great things. There's some you like cringe, you know, and then you look at some of the storylines and you think, this is where the bold and the beautiful got all their plot lines. <laughs> this is full, jam-packed. So I love it. So the story that God's put on my heart today is the story of Joseph. And what I want to do first is look at Genesis as a whole because the theme throughout Genesis is seed, it's land, it's covenant, it's land that God wants to give us and the land that he created, it's the seed of um, lineage and of people and it's covenant and it's his promises. And we see so many Christ-like characters and Joseph is one of those, I believe. But I believe the story is more than just Joseph being faithful to get a blessing. The Lord really put it on my heart that at the front of this story is his plan, God's plan for Joseph's life was so much bigger, so much more glorious than he could have imagined. And at the backdrop of that, it was how he ran his race well in the midst of that adversity. And so today I want to look at that. How do we run our race well for God? And 1 Corinthians does say, it says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict, strict training. Strict training, because they don't do it to get a crown. That's just on earth. We do it to, a crown, to get a crown that will last forever. And so I want to get into the story. So if you've got your Bible, otherwise feel free to go along with the slides. So chapter 37 in Genesis. And we see that we've got Jacob. Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Silpah. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was a son of his old age. And he also got a tunic of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved them, him, more than all his brothers, they hated him and they couldn't speak peaceably to him. And then Joseph had this dream and he very tactfully told his brothers about it and they hated him even more. And the dream was about the sheaves in the field. And Joseph's sheep arises and the brothers' sheaves were bound down to his. And then so they say, shall you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he has another dream and he thinks, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's tell them this dream. And it's about the sun and the moon and the stars. And um, they're bowing down to Joseph. And then it comes in that his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. And so straight away I want to look at the brothers. We see their hearts are hardened, they've been rejected, they've got hatred in their heart, there's discord, there's offence being taken, there's now envy. It goes right back to the garden, you know. And also with Cain, Cain had that envy in his heart and led to murder. And what I see straight away is the problem is they didn't have a foundation for their identity. They took their focus off the rock and it can happen to us today. And Jesus tells us the most important parable, the important parable in the Bible is the sower of the seed. 
because God knew that if the seed, if the word was falling on rocks, we receive it with joy. But as soon as tribulation comes, trouble, calamity, these things, persecution, we have we stumble. We've got no root. Or if the seed's being sown on thorns, we hear the word. We but the cut, the worries. The cares of the world, the brothers are looking at the cares, they're looking at other people, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes it. So these brothers can't become fruitful. And so what I was thinking was, wow, we actually can't have our identity in our car, in our house, in our marriage, in our family, how our family sees us, whether or not we're the favourite or, or maybe we're not, um, what people think, our status, because all those things change. And some of those are blessings, but they change, but God doesn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so it's not even in our denomination. You know, when people ask me that, I just say, I'm just a disciple of Jesus. That's it. Baseline. I'm his beloved. I'm a child of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm complete in him. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm the head and not the tail. I'm in him and he is in me. And I love that scripture about abiding in him. And my favorite meaning of the word abide is to be remain as one. That's where my foundation is. And then when that happens, that's when the sower and the seed comes in where he says, when you'll see, when this word falls in that good, good soil, that's your foundation. We can then be fruitful, 30, 60, 100 times fruitful because we trusted God and we haven't trusted in man. And Paul, Paul could confidently say, he said, I know what it means to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, well-fed, hungry, in want or in plenty. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. So if we keep reading on, we see that Joseph is sent to Shechem by his father to go feed the flocks with his brothers. But they're not there, and that's an 80k journey, so he's not close to home. But he meets this man, and the man says, no, keep going to Dothan. Um, they've departed from here. So that's another 24 k's that he has to travel. And when he comes near them, the brothers see him and they say, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. And the only one who tries to stand in the gap for him is Reuben. But when Reuben goes away, some Midianite traders come by and the brothers think it's a great idea, rather than shed the blood, that they're just going to sell him off for that um, 300 shekels. And that's, oh, 20 shekels, sorry, then that means about $300 if it was in our, in our time. So then we see the brothers now have to lie, so they have to commit a sin upon a sin to cover themselves. And they go back to their father, who remembers. Jacob, uh, Joseph is the favourite son, and he tears his clothes. Jacob goes into mourning for many, many days, and he goes, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning, and thus his father wept on him. And it was all because these brothers were building their house on the sand. They were not unified on the rock. And straight away I saw, wow, as the body of Christ, these brothers could have come together and celebrated Joseph, you know, said, Wow, look at the gifting on your life, because they had giftings on their life too. They totally missed it. They didn't see that they had calling on their life, that their identity was in God, that they were special too. And so what the word I got for this is they allows their bruised, their wounded, their offended hearts to speak louder than truth. 
And let us speak loud in the truth. And so please, in the body of Christ, we don't compare our gifts or our callings. We're all needed. Every single one of us is needed to do the work, to do, to do kingdom work for his glory and his glory alone. Amen. <laughs> so, we'll keep moving with the story. So we're going to skip over to chapter 39 now. And we can see that Joseph gets taken down to Egypt. And he's given to Potiphar, who's an officer of the Pharaoh. And he's brought from these Ishmaelites who have been who have taken down there. And I want to break down the next few. Oh, well done, thanks, Anne. <laughs> I want to break down these next few sentences because there's a lot of power and, and things we can take out of them. And the first is the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And the word successful in Hebrew means to prosper, thrive, be profitable, to succeed, to progress. So he's a thriving slave. I think that's amazing, a thriving slave. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. And it got me thinking, oh my goodness, this pagan Egyptian who's got all these different gods can see something in Joseph. What is he doing? And I immediately got back to my own story of, oh, it all happens in the secret place. Joseph had a one-to-one relationship with God. And you know, I don't know if you've done this, but early in my journey, I was piggybacking off other people's relationship. I'd read sermons, I'd listen to different speakers, and I'd try and emulate their character or their walk or try and do things the way they did them. And it just led to walking in the flesh. It led to backsliding. And we can't do this journey without knowing Jesus ourselves personally. We, can, we could even read this word like a biography. We could know everything about Jesus. We could know the facts about him, but we could still not know him personally. And that's where we need to do it, in the secret place. And I know in the first few years of my walk, a lot of time spent with God was 99% of my problems, you know, my struggles. I was reading very little of the word, just getting snippets here and there. And then God allowed big events to hit. And I believe he did it to wake me up. And it was a good thing. I I can look back and say, thank you, Lord. And I remember back in my journey when I was seeking God, I went, oh, there's a spiritual law in that, that when you seek, you will find. When you ask, you'll be given. When you knock, the door will be answered for you. So my time with God now has changed. We're talking throughout the day. I'm reading this word, devouring it as much as possible. Um, you know, I would rather spend an hour just worshipping him, just sitting with him, praising him, and then have 10 minutes of prayer at the end. It's just totally changed my walk. And this is the time in the secret place where we ask him, Lord, plant your promises in my heart. Help me have a heart of gratitude. Help me walk like you walk. Change me. Mold me. Scold me. Transform me. Make me more like you. Abide. Help me abide in you as you are in me. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't do anything without Jesus. Nothing. And so we keep going in Joseph's story. And the next line is, so Joseph found favour in his sight and served him. And I love this word, serve. You know, he's in the land of his affliction. He's away from everything he knew. And yet he chose to serve. And I know for myself, when I change that thing from, oh God, I need you to do this, to, Lord, what can I do for you? Who can I help? I know beautiful Wendy is an answer to my prayer, being able to do Kids Club. That's just one of the things that he's opened up for me, and I, and I thank him for that. 
But it is more than that. It is in the church, and we must serve in the church, but it's our family. You know, he's put such a heart in me that children, if you've got children, if you've got grandchildren, sow into their life. I've got a four-year-old, and, and sometimes I think she might not be ready for the word, but then I give it to her, and she's starting to preach to my husband at home, and I just think, wow, the word is powerful. These children are the next generation that's so into them. You know, it's praying for our brothers and, and, and serving with excellence, serving like you're serving Jesus. You know, if you see someone out in the street and they're looking down, it's asking, how's your day going? Just caring, just loving on people. Um, as the communion message was saying today, you know, loving on people. And I can't, I can't even go past the, the Great Commission. You know, we've got to, we have to start sharing our faith. And that can look very different for different people. It could be letterbox dropping tracks. You can just start there, you know. But eventually, when you're in that secret place and you ask him, I want to overcome this fear of stepping out, he will answer. It is not my thing in the beginning to step out, but only, I can only give him the glory for being able to talk to other people about Jesus. Because... I realise we are going to be strange. We are. He says it in the word. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a peculiar people. We are strange. We're light in darkness. Darkness wants to, you know, the cockroaches want to flee from the light. They want to hide in the darkness, but we're exposing it. We're the kingdom. Darkness comes away when the light steps in. So we keep going in the story, and we see now that... Um, after his, yeah, his serving, and then he made him overseer. So Potiphar makes Joseph overseer of his house, and all that he had was put under his authority. And so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of the house and all he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Whew, this is amazing. You know, now he's got um, an, he's an atmosphere changer. He's walked into this place. Now he has authority over a household. That's amazing. He's rising in the physical authority, and I think he rose in the spiritual authority as well for being obedient to God, for, for, um, for being in his land of affliction and serving regardless, even when he probably didn't feel like it sometimes. And... Um, he had dominion over that sphere of influence, and we do too. So, you know, in your street, you can walk around your street and pray. Pray over the houses. Pray for hearts to be changed. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come into your neighborhood. You have authority over that. And I had a big um, event happen this week. I'm not sure if you saw on the news, but a Changa had, were on flood watch. We had the dam at the top of the hill. And if you lined that right up, I was the house in line at the end of the creek where it would have hit. So... I got a knock on the door at 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday saying, you need to evacuate, you need to pack and get out now. And then I had another person come as well and say, oh yeah, we're going, my neighbours, oh yeah, we're packing up, we're going, this is, this is serious. And I'll tell you what, something didn't feel right. Something didn't feel right when I, when I was hearing that. My husband had already decided that he wanted to stay and get the house protected, you know, put all the things in place. And I said, Brett, I have to go. I have to go for a walk. I have to talk with God because something's not sitting right. So I went for a walk and I said, Lord, I don't mind. If you want me to stay, I'll stay. If you want me to go, I'll go. But I won't, I won't get into fear. I won't get into fear. And I just kept walking and praying and I stood still and then I heard a still small voice. Stand. No disaster will come near your tent. That was it. And I went, all right. 
And so I called a couple of ladies that I know in America and I said, have you got any insight? I'd love you to pray for this situation as well. And they just said, you need to be in Esther in this moment. And thankfully, the Lord just knows how to use things because back in Ballarat I'd done a course, an Esther course, so I knew exactly what that meant. And I'd already actually started fasting that morning. I had a feeling that that was something I needed to do and she just confirmed that. So I spent the day, I spent the day fasting. It was the easiest fast I did. It was a day and a half, no food. It never felt easier. It was great. <laughs> and I just prayed. I just interceded. Brett thought I was a bit crazy. I'm out there, you know, worshipping the Lord in my front yard. But I didn't care who saw. I didn't care who saw because God, I knew that other people were praying, but I had to do my bit. And he said, stand. And I'll tell you what, he performed a miracle that night. We had over two metres of the dam taken out, the water taken out, and the threat was gone by 10 a.m. the next day. So we'll take from that what you will, but I trusted God and he answered. So we'll keep going in the story. So now we see we've got the master's wife. She's casting longing eyes on Joseph and she says, lie with me. But he refused and says, there's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything back from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. And straight away I can see this spirit of Jezebel working through her because she doesn't let up. It's constant. And But the beautiful thing about Joseph is his character is so developed and so one with God that he submits to God. He says, no, I'm not doing that against God. He resists the enemy and he flees. And this is how the devil's works through all of creation, he says, he plants the, the seed, the seed to sin in your mind. And that's why we need to take out all our thoughts captive. He puts the desire in your heart and then he creates the opportunity for you to follow through. And by the end of it, you're like, how did I get from here to here? But it was, he's a roaring lion. He'll come in, he'll try anything. He'll, he'll look for a chink in your armour. It's dirty play. It's dirty play. That's why we must be grounded in the rock. We must know know our Lord and, and realise that no temptation has overtaken you that is com- that is not common to men. This common thing is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's been the same, the same story since the beginning. And first John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And God really opened my eyes to the nature of sin. And I remember when I had a situation with someone else and I'm thinking it's the other person and then he just highlighted me and I was like, whoa, look at this repentance, this need to repent because to repent is to change your thinking. It's to turn from your sin. It's the most beautiful thing in the world that you can be given is the opportunity to repent before God. And I, I, I stick by it that we must keep asking to be sanctified because he even says in his word that complaining, gossip, um, idols, social media, TV, don't tell me TV's not an idol, all the furniture's facing it, um, bitterness, hatred, every form of malice and slander, you know, there's, when, we're never at the end, we can always be cleansed, we can always be whole, become more holy as he is holy, there's always work to do in ourselves and how we respond. And he says, you know, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. And I believe that he honoured that in Joseph. 
even though it didn't look like it in the physical that he was blessed because then the master finds out um, what the lie, the lie that the wife told him that it was Joseph's fault when it wasn't and he gets thrown into jail. But look at this, the Lord was with Joseph even in the prison and showed him mercy and he gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison didn't look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. So look, what looked like a demotion was actually a spiritual promotion because now he's got a new sphere of influence. He's got a new amount of people to serve um, the poor in spirit. So this, as much as you might see it as a bad thing, I think this was actually God working. This was a good thing. And so what we can see next is the butler and the baker in the Pharaoh's house in Egypt. They get kicked out and get sent into prison. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. So again, Joseph serving regardless of who's put in front of him. But this day they look sad because they both had this dream and it was troubling them and they couldn't work out what it was. And so Joseph says, why? Why do you look so sad today? How beautiful is that? He's in the land of his affliction and he's compassionate. He's got the father's heart. He's asking these people, why are you sad? And they said, we have a dream and there's no interpreter. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please. So he's still telling them, this is where my hope is. This is the God that answers. This is the God that's with me. And so I won't go through the dreams, but he correctly interprets them. And all he asks is that the butler go back to the Pharaoh and ask that he be released from prison. But the butler totally forgets about him. And so he spends another two years in prison. And then it came to pass at the end of the two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And this is where it gets interesting. He has this dream about the cows. There's two thin cows, seven thin cows, seven fat cows, and seven thin cows out eat the seven fat cows, and it's the same for the grain. And he can't work out um, what, what the meaning is, but he knows it's important. And so he calls all these people, these mystics, these tarot people, to try and work it out, and no one can. But finally the butler remembers Joseph. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph and says, I've heard it is said of you that you can understand a dream, a dream to interpret it. And so Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So humble. And so he correctly interprets it. It's showing that there will be seven years of plenty and there will be seven years of famine and they need to store up as much as they can and they need an overseer to oversee this harvesting in the next seven years. And so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, but he says to his servants, can we even find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God, as discerning and wise as this Joseph? And I just think that's wonderful, you know, that there, again, the Pharaoh is now acknowledging that there is something at work in Joseph. And so what Pharaoh does is he appoints him as that overseer. And then Pharaoh takes his signet ring off his hand and puts it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in this beautiful chariot. He went through the town so that everyone knew that Joseph was the one in charge. And Pharaoh renamed Joseph to Zabnath Kenneth and he gave him a wife, Azanath. And so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. When I first read this, I thought, oh, this is the point where people say when he's faithful that he gets the blessing. But something didn't sit right, and then it clicked. 
And God made me see that we actually really have to be careful when we're reading this bit because we need to discern the worldly influences that are happening here. If you look in any other part of the Bible, like Solomon or Samson, pagan wife, being given a pagan wife was not a good thing. He wanted us equally yoked. So Solomon had wealth, he had status, he had power, he had all the wisdom in the world, but what happened? His pagan wives drew him away from God. And we see that time and time again. And what happened is Joseph's story, he's gone from up, He's gone from down, now he's gone from down and he's right back up the top. And I think in a man's life or a woman's life, the greater test of your character will always be when you're at the bottom and you're given the top. Because in one hit, Joseph's given fame, fortune, females, power. I don't know about you, but I like to think I could steward those things, but I I honestly don't know. What would you do if you were given all these things in one hit? And we've had good and bad examples of how people have fallen because of worldly influences. We see Paul, he was so good at it. He was like kingdom living. He didn't care where he was. He was just going to serve. Um, we see Abram. I love the story. I've actually researched it a bit now on Ur before he got called. Um, Ur was a thriving nation. They had hot and cold water running. They had paved streets. They had a wonderful civilization. He was in comfort. Abraham was in comfort. He was wealthy. He was intelligent. He had a mansion compared to these days. And God called him at 75 years old to pull him out of that comfort living to live in a tent in Canaan. Totally different climate. Ur was stable, warm, beautiful. Canaan was cold, windy, you know, hills, valleys. Could you do it if you were called by God to come out of your comfort living at 75 years old and go to Canaan? I don't know. (laughs) I'd like to say I would. So what they're saying is, you know, yes, Pharaoh's giving him all these blessings, but we can't hold our hope in those things. That's worldly stuff. You know, God says that the highest blessing on this earth you can receive is being the new creation. He clothes you, not in fine linen like this. He clothes you in a robe of righteousness. You are clothed in garments of salvation. That is far better than anything a Pharaoh of Egypt can give us. And he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. So just, you know, when we're stewarding, I know I've been given so much extra time this year, I've had to be careful that I don't use it for myself, that the time I've been given, I'm stewarding it for God. I'm, I'm sowing into my children the word. Um, any, any money that comes in, I'm, I'm very careful about where that goes or the influence I have. We have to steward these things for God's glory and not our own. And so I have to skip a little bit. We're going to skip through the next part of the story. So Joseph... Joseph's brothers were two years into the famine now, and Joseph's brothers are struggling. They don't have any grain, and the only place that they know to get it is Egypt. So they come to Egypt, they're faced in front of Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, they have no idea who he is. And so the first thing Joseph does is not reveal himself because he wants to test their character. He doesn't want to just leap in and say, Here I am. He wants to check that his brother Benjamin's okay. He wants to check that his father's okay, and he wants to check that the the brothers have changed over this time. So he sets up a few things. He puts a cup, a silver cup, in Benjamin's Benjamin's bag, 
and defames him. And that allows Benjamin to stay in Egypt. And here we see the only person to stand in the gap for him is Judah. In chapter 44, Judah came near to Joseph and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. And he says, Your servant will bring down the grey hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that shall come upon my father? It's just beautiful. We can see the character changes here. We can see that Judah is now standing in the gap for his brother. He doesn't have that anger or that hatred in his heart anymore. He's willing to sacrifice himself to keep this family united, to keep his father from mourning again. And so what Joseph does is he, he reveals himself at that moment and he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life for these two years that famine has been in the land. And we'll stop there. So the first thing we can see is there is a greater plan that God had. God had a plan to preserve life, not just for his family, but for most of Egypt that would come before him from all grain. It's beautiful. But then he continues and he says, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. I've read over that that many times, but then that word posterity stood out to me. I was like, what does that mean? And a posterity is a remnant. It's a descendant. It's an heir. So he's talking about one person here. And for ages I wondered, what? How does this link up? Who is this descendant or heir? And we were told about him back in chapter 44. Judah, he is now revealed as the lineage, if we know the story of the tribes. Where does Jesus' lineage in Matthew stem all the way back to? It doesn't stem back to Joseph. I always wondered why he didn't pick Joseph. He picked the line of Judah. So Judah here is revealed as the well, Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Joseph's story is not only to preserve life in Egypt. His story is to preserve the line of Judah so that the seed could continue, so that we could have Jesus. <sighs> Mind-blowing. It's incredible. This story is so much bigger than we could have even imagined without Joseph doing what he did. See, God already had the plan for him to go to Egypt. He just used what the brothers were doing to help get him there. It was so much bigger. And he says, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. God sent me here, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and of all throughout the land of Egypt. And we can see that Joseph has remained God's man. Joseph has remained God's man. He had two brothers, uh, two, two sons, should I say, two sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. And those names really mean that he has forgiven. He's let go. He's, he's accepted the affliction and he's done God's work here. And so as we come to the end now, I really want to encourage you that Joseph's story is evidence that we can be joyful always. We can pray at all times. We can be thankful in all circumstances. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things God has planned for us who love him. 
And in the midst of God shaping us, we usually pray that all these difficulties just be removed, instead that they would change us. Start praying that they would change us. What we think is destroying us is actually building us into the very thing God can use. So let's lose that idea that God will make our run an easy and comfortable, steady pace. There are going to be mountains, there are going to be hills, there's going to be testings. But he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you in union with Christ Jesus will himself perfect you, complete you, and give you a sure foundation. Here's our foundation. So let's be sure. I just want to pray right now for everyone. Father, I lift everyone up here today. And I ask, Lord, that you would help them to surrender everything to you, Jesus. Surrender it all, put it all down and give it to you to steward for your glory. May they put on their spiritual armour through any difficulties, Lord, and have faith that our Father God, that you know exactly what you're doing in their life. And I pray, Father, that you will let people here help them run with endurance, Lord, this race. This race that is set before us, that we're looking to Jesus always that you are the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will keep this in their mind, that this word will not return void, that this will settle in their hearts and they will see that there is more, that there is a great plan for their life and it's to prosper them and not to harm them. Amen. Amen.